Today's session is uh, about a remarkable man, but it's also about a book written by an equally remarkable New Zealander. Um, (laughs) (laughs) On cue, on cue. Um, Remain seated, remain seated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tom will bear with me, for those of you who don't know him or haven't heard of him, which would be very few, Um, has been described as a polymath, a renaissance man, or a bloke, as one person once told me, a bloke who is rather too clever for his own good. Um, He's been a political commentator, journalist, eminent cartoonist, uh, maker of drama series, documentaries. He's an author... And he's one of those New Zealanders, and Tom, I'm sure, will bear with me, that has made us think, most importantly, think, but laugh, cry, and join in his exploration of New Zealand and New Zealanders. Um, This book, Searching for Charlie, is a biography of a notoriously reticent and elusive personality. Um, a homegrown hero in every sense of the word, Um, the only combat soldier to be awarded two VCs. Is that correct, Tom? Yes, and he was entitled to eight. (laughs) Yeah, I read that. that, We'll get on to that. Um, It's a story of war and peace, and it's also the story of Tom's own epic journey across the world and back to search for the essence of Charles or Charlie Upham, VC. And I was going to begin, Tom, with a very difficult question, but let's, let's get the difficult ones out of the way. What is a hero? And what is your definition of a hero? Well, it's, a t- it's people who do things that you couldn't possibly do yourself and all, in, in any endearing, intellectually, creatively, Courage-wise, I mean, Ed, Ed, Ed Hillary was a hero to me as well. Janet Frame, Ralph Hotary, you know, all those people. Richie McCord, just to suck up to the local audience. Yeah. <laughs> people who do things above and beyond what mere mortals are capable of. Yeah. I, I had to confess at this point, as we said backstage, I met him once, and I found him terrifying, I have to say. Um, Which was Janet Frame or... or, or, (laughs) It was the way he just looked at you and never said a word. He just... Apparently his eyes were like cold sapphires, just piercing cold blue and people were terrified. He once demanded of an Italian guard in the hospital, he said to the guard, hand me your knife, said Charlie. Hand me your knife. And the, the Italian guard was so terrified he meekly unbuckled the scabbard and handed across his dagger. Because of the, the intensity of Charlie's gaze, you could bore a hole through steel. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's my memory of it. Um, now, there's been one previous biography yep. called Mark of the Lion. Mm. What makes yours different, do you think? It's written 20 years later, or 30 years later, how many years later? 60 years later, sorry, my mess is not my strong point. The other good thing was, when I, I really admired Mark the Lion, I thought it was a terrific book. I read it in one night. 
crying in parts and exultant in other parts. An extraordinary book. It was passed around the performance fielding ag. Went from boy to boy to boy. And we all read it. And we all had to read it quickly because there was such a queue of other guys who wanted to read it. I thought it was extraordinary. And then when I contacted um, Roger, Ken Sanford's son, Roger, who's a lawyer in Christchurch here, lovely man, Roger said, oh, the original manuscript was cut by a quarter. From, they want Macmillan or company wanted to save a bit of money on, on paper, so they said, said to Mr Sanford, you, we have to take out 25% of the book. So there's 25% of the original book was lying in a, in a cardboard box, and they gave me that book. And for some reason or other, all sorts of stories which I would not have taken out of the book remained there for me. What a stroke of luck. I got a quarter of the original book available for me, and there are now stories in my book which weren't in the original book for that reason. Plus, I was able to uh, pursue Charlie's life after the war when Ken Sanford's book ended in, in the 1960s. So I had, I had more of Charlie's life to cover. And, and I decided Ken Sanford didn't go overseas. And I thought, if I go to the battlegrounds, I might get a better sense of the geography and topography, get a better, a better understanding of the, of the chess game if I can see the chessboard. So I went to Italy, Modena in Italy, and Weinsberg in Germany and the battlefields of Alamein and in North Africa and, and to Crete. And it was extraordinary going to those places. You've got a far better sense of what took place. I, for Crete, for example, I was staggered at how big Crete is. It's huge. You think of it, a tiny sort of warm tropical island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It had snow on the mountains and it was, seemed to be bigger than the Coromandel. And you could think, goodness me, this is a huge place where two armies could get lost fighting each other. And, I was, and plus I had all sorts of other... I was able to talk to a few old soldiers who were still alive. One of them was 99, Captain Bob Wood, Major Bob Wood, brother. And he told me extraordinary stories about Charlie, and he was Charlie's friend. He worked for an insurance company here in Christchurch, and Charlie used his offices as his base. When he came down from Conway Flats, he would go to Bob's office and park himself there. And, 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 and Bob and, and Charlie and their wives holiday together to Australia. Charlie, at one stage, wanted to migrate to Australia. His one big regret was he hadn't migrated to Australia when he was after the war, because he, no disrespect to Christchurch and Canterbury, he loved the vastness and the big open skies of Australia. He thought there was more opportunity, and maybe he should have moved to Australia. And that, that, that would have meant that our hero became Australia's hero, which would have been ghastly. <laughs> you might, yeah, you might regret saying that. Because the Australians do tend to. Sort they will. Of... They will grab them now. Now they will. Yeah. 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 Now, he was really from a boyhood. He was an unconventional personality, who came from a very conventional background. Yeah. You see, the, the, they were very. They lived lost the street, not very far away. Quite a large house. They had servants during the depression, so he had a he had a wealthy background. They had a a cook and a driver and a gardener. And they lived in Gloucester Street. And his parents sent him to boarding school just over the road. So he boarded at a school which a good cricketer could have thrown a ball to. I don't know why his parents sent him off to boarding school when he could have just walked, walked to school over the road. But he would, the thing about his childhood, that was a privileged childhood. He had an uncle called Charles Hazlitt Upham who was known as the Little Doctor. Heard of the Little Doctor in Littleton? For years he was the, the doctor in Littleton and one of his, part of his, his practice included treating lepers on the island in the middle of Littleton Harbour. And he took little Charlie with him. And I believe, as my, my, and other members of the family have told me the same thing, that Charlie's sense of moral 
his moral strength came from his, his uncle's example. His uncle was so brave and treated these, these lepers with such courage and dignity. He, in fact, on his days off, he would go into Christchurch Hospital and visit the lepers in Christchurch Hospital who needed hospital treatment because he knew no one else would be visiting them. And I reckon Charlie's sense of fair play and his huge egalitarian engine was generated from contact with his, his uncle, the little doctor in Littleton. There's a wonderful photo in the book of Charlie as um, a wee toddler, and he's advancing on the camera like that. His two sisters are sitting mm. in true Edwardian fashion. Charlie's advancing towards yeah. the camera with his fists like that. Mm. And obviously, from boyhood, the personality was emerging. His nickname at, at Waihee Primary School down in the boarding school is begin. how could parents send a five- or six-year-old off to a remote boarding school in North Otago? Charlie went down to Waihee, and his nickname was Pug, for, short for Pugnacious. He was such a little scrapper. He, he, would, he stood up for himself, and he, he didn't... He didn't was a target for bullying, but defended himself very well. Mm. And he developed a lifelong loathing of bullying, and Nazi Germany is the gold standard for bullies. So Charlie, of course, wanted Nazi Germany brought, brought to an end as quickly as possible. One of the things that emerges in the book, and I found added a human dimension, his father was disappointed that he didn't follow into the law. Yeah. Um, because his father was a very eminent sort of jurist. His father was a very successful and quite a tough lawyer in court, quite a brilliant cross-examiner and a, understood, understood statute law very, very thoroughly. Very successful lawyer. I don't know if he was a barrister, but he was certainly a lawyer. And he, he was disappointed in Charlie. In fact, Charlie's parents couldn't believe it when if someone came up and came, came and saw them and said, your son is one of VC. What, Charlie? You know, they, they couldn't believe that Charlie could have turned into a, uh, into a great soldier. Yeah. I think they were proud of him after that, though. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing, though, the great people that have emerged from parental disappointment or disapproval. Mm. Churchill was the same, I suppose. Mm. Christ College, again, yeah. very conventional sort of, as you say, yeah. boarding. Then he went to Canterbury Agricultural College. Mm. Seemed to blossom. He did. He had more freedom out there, and he was older by then, of course. But also, you can see the seeds of the troublemaker that Charlie was in concentration camps emerged at Lincoln. There was a, a new lecturer arrived who said that no records can be played in the dorms after 7.30 at night. They weren't allowed to play their music because it was unfair, and other students who were trying to study, all the guys thought this was unfair. So Charlie organised a revolt. He said, on, on the next night, we're all going to put our record players on full blast at 7.30 and lock our doors. So at the appointed hour, they all locked their doors, went in their rooms and put on their respective music. So there were operas competing with jazz, competing with early rock and roll. There's thundering cacophony reverberating around the boarding houses at, boarding house at Lincoln College. And the lecturer went berserk, and he went running down the corridor, ramming, hammering on doors, and no one would open their doors. This music was thundering through the, through the halls, hallowed halls. Then he went back to his own room and walked in the door, and guys had put wiener piglets in there with some and, and so they'd crapped all over his bed and in his bed and so that was his punishment for being too bossy and Charlie did the same thing when I love the story about Charlie when he was in in Weidsburg camp he arrived and Charlie would getting a visual audio visual presentation now Charlie arrived and he had a little notebook and he paced out carefully paced out the camp and turned right and then left and 
every time he got to the end of a line, he would scribble in his notebook notes and check, check it out again. When counting, obviously counting loudly to himself, writing more notes. The camp gates flew open and a, a little patrol came flying through, Germans with guns, and an officer. And the officer came up to Charlie and demanded, hand me your notebook. Charlie said, fuck off. He always spoke, I have to apologise, that's how Charlie spoke, his language was shocking. They called it, they called it down here rural and agricultural. <laughs> and, uh, and his daughter Amanda was the same, she, she swore like a father, she was a shocker. It was quite disturbing in a coffee bar in Auckland. Those cunts, those fucking cunts. <laughs> Amanda, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so they, they demanded Charlie's notebook, which he wouldn't hand across. And finally the guy pulled out his loogie and jabbed Charlie in the stomach and said, hand over your notebook. Charlie handed over his notebook, and what he'd done, he'd, on one bit of paper, he'd drawn the treasured island, a coral island, a desert island, with a single palm tree and an X on the sand, and the X was marked treasure. <laughs> and there was, so that was just Charlie, Charlie doing everything he could to piss the Germans off. Also, they used to censor the letters when they, when they were sent home, so Charlie wrote home to his mother saying, don't expect me for a couple of weeks, I've got lots of things to sort out here first. <laughs> And the Germans thought, what? He's planning to leave, you know. And, <laughs> and there was no way Charlie was... He did try to escape several times in broad daylight, but he just wrote that letter to begin to piss the Germans off. And he had a, another, another um, guy in the... A guy we called... From, I think his name was Ritter from the North Island. He was always arguing with Charlie over which breed of sheep were better. And Charlie thought the guy had the wrong end of the stick. And the guy was always also going on about his favourite dog. So Charlie wrote a letter which... Pretended came in with the post and Rutherford opened it up and the guy said, I had to sell you all your Corridales off and I got a very poor price for them. And the guy was horrified about having his sheep all sold. He said, by the way, I had to have your dog skip put down. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's in the prisoner of war camp, just his favourite dog just had to be put down and he's <laughs> terribly upset until he sees Charlie laughing across the room and it's just a, it was a bullshit letter that Charlie had, had sent to him. So he, he, had, a, he had a good sense of humour. Yes, yeah. As long as you didn't have a dog called Skip, who was quite friendly. <laughs> now, as we all know, World War Two broke out. Mm. He was, Charles was desperate, well, he seemed to be desperate to get into the army and away into he, the sort of he didn't action. He didn't want the war to be over before he got there. He, he left Lincoln College early. He was the top student... Absolutely brilliant student. Apparently he was the best judge of livestock when they went out to sales and they went, went to local sales and sort of had to judge the, the animals as if they were buyers and Charlie's estimates of what the stock was worth was always the best. And he was, he was on, on course to be the gold medal winner that year at Lincoln. When World War II was declared, Charlie quit Lincoln immediately and went off to Vernon Military Camp. He was one of the first guys through the new camp. The camp hadn't even been finished. They were still tar sealing drives and stuff. And um, the Kippenberger, who, another South Canterbury man, was worried, worried about picking officers. And he said to his adjutant, who are we going to pick to be an, be an officer? And the guy said, I think we should look for the list of people who, who um, went to boarding school. And Kippenberger said, why? Well, they had military drill. Anyone who went to a good boarding school like Christ or something like that, they would have had military training. And they, they would probably be the, a good place to start for picking officers. And knock on the door and the sergeant major came in and said, there's a man here to see you, sir. Kippenberg said, I'm very, very busy. And the guy said, well, I think you better see him. He won't take no for an answer. And there was a little short man with piercing blue eyes in the foyer, who, of course, was Charlie. And Charlie came in, and Kippenberg said, 
Kibbutz said, what's your problem? He said, a man owes me money on the car and uh, I want to track him down and give him a hiding. <laughs> and Kibbutz said, well, if a man does owe you money, that seems quite legitimate. And he said, um, but you've got to be back. I'll give you 24 hours leave. You've got to be back on Sunday night. And then Charlie marched out of the office without saluting. But he had his leave. And then Kippenberger turned to his second in command and he said, well, what's the story? And the guy had the role there and said, he went to Christ College. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie was handpicked to be an officer. And when he was told he could be an officer, and Charlie said, will this delay me going overseas if I go after this officer training course? And I said, yes, it will. It will delay you going overseas by a month or two. Charlie said, well, jam it up your ass. I'm not going to be an officer. I want to go overseas as soon as I can. So he went off overseas in the very first advanced ship ahead of everyone else. So him and half a dozen other people were sent off to sewers before everyone else. So he, Charlie was delighted. In fact, he was supposed to get married, but he, he cancelled his wedding so he could go to war. He was quite prepared to disappoint Molly, but didn't want to disappoint Hitler. Um, Molly was really, um, I say this without being over-romantic, but she was the love of his life, wasn't she? She really? definitely was. When, I, uh, when the book came out, someone dropped me a note. It was, I um, uh, can't remember the name, Shand, yeah. A, a woman called, called Shand dropped me a note saying that she knew the story about Charlie when he was bunking with other guys, when he was a land valuer. They had the phone, or, and when he worked on her uncle's property, the, the phone was outside the, sh the men's quarters, and the Charlie would be on the phone talking to Molly, and his love talk to Molly went on for so long and was so sickening, guys took their mattresses out of the bunk bed and went off and slept somewhere else because <laughs> his lovey, that lovey-dovey talk to Molly, but she, she seems to be, she was the glue that held him together after the war, no, no yeah. question. Yeah, she was a remarkable woman in yeah. her own right, really. Yeah. And they, they had three beautiful girls. The, you see the teenage girls, they all look like um, 60s fashion models, looked like Twiggy and and they were all absolutely lithe and, and gorgeous. They were absolutely stunningly beautiful girls. How Charlie felt about that. When Charlie had Charlie announced that he had twins, he's all his mates dropping notes, do you have to do everything in doubles? <laughs> and and, uh, yeah, and they, they, they had absolute... They, they didn't know their father was a VC winner until they went to high school. And people told them about it and produced magazines, and they realised, oh... Tom, why do you think he was so driven to get overseas before somebody else? He, he, knew all about, he, he knew all about fascism and he knew all about Kristallnacht and all those things. He was a huge reader of newspapers, stapled to the Dunny Wall up in high country stations. Charlie was a huge big reader and he was... Hitler and fascism disgusted him. Mm. And thanks to his example of his uncle with the treatment of... In fact, Hitler equated Jews with, with leprosy. You know, Hitler called the Jews lepers as well. And Charlie just couldn't stand the anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany and the cruelty because he was unbelievably egalitarian. Charlie was opposed to the Springbok tour because he thought the treatment of the Afrikaner government, the, their treatment of the blacks was just un unforgivable. So he was a, a critic of the, of the Springbok tour, as I think was the other Christchurch VC guy, Jack Hinton. And Keith Elliott, the other VC winner, I think our VC winners were pretty were, shows the quality of the men. They were all egalitarian and, and opposed to the Springbok tour. Charlie was opposed to the Springbok tour in North Canterbury. It was a view you would have kept to yourself, I think. <laughs> so that was yeah. the OK, we, he arrives in Egypt. 
He gets promoted again, yeah. eventually, to second lieutenant. He meets Leggy Legros, yeah. and the relationship... Leggy was his Batman, or... Yes, That's he was. Batman, yeah. And it was like Baldrick and Blackadder, mm. in a good sense of the word. Um, I mean, your, your stories of the relationship between these two guys was amazing. Well, very a lot of them too. came from Ken Sanford, um, but I, I, I mean, heard a few extras. Like, for instance, when Charlie was given his first VC medal in the desert, he wasn't wearing his khaki socks because he was wearing bright canary yellow socks because Leggy had sold his. Leggy's forever selling Charlie's boots and gear and stuff because he was basically he was a crook. And, um, but Charlie loved him because, again, their relationship was, 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 was equal. Charlie would make Leggy as much many cups of tea as Leggy as Leggy made Charlie, but there's a great story at the officer training school, which I loved, which, I, which I did, wasn't in the original book. The um, Freiburg came to the officer training course camp in the middle of Cairo and said, it's a tradition in England when a distinguished visitor pays a school a visit, we, we have the power to grant the school the boys a day off the next day. And that happened when in Fielding Ag, when the Governor-General came to Fielding Ag, was at a high school, he gave everyone the day off the next day, the whole school cheered, but Apparently it's a tradition. You remember that happening at school? So Freiburg said, the boys all get a day off tomorrow, and the British commandant of the school wasn't very happy, but Freiburg insisted. When the brewery next door had heard that there was a school was having a day off, they decided to hold an open day, <laughs> and the pupils could go next door and sample the beverage. And the commandant divided the, the, the school up into two, and the first half of the alphabet went in in the morning, and the second half would go in in the afternoon. The morning crew shot off to the brewery, got comprehensively pissed, and, and they wandered back across the road to the Cairo Zoo, which I visited. They went into the Cairo Zoo completely drunk. They let all the monkeys out of the cage, put the zookeepers in the cage, and they went to something really quite irresponsible. They let out the hippos and the rhinos. And Charlie described, used to tell his mates, Charlie, when fits of laughter came, they came back across the road when, at lunchtime when it was their turn. And the, Charlie saw a guy on a, riding a hippo, jabbing it in the, in the flanks with his bayonet, riding it out onto the Cairo, Cairo streets. The hippo would have gone straight to, the, straight to the Nile. So possibly somewhere at the head of the Nile, there were lots of little New Zealanders fathered by a Kiwi soldier who escaped from the officer training school. <laughs> but there would be a scene in a, in a Spielberg movie, wouldn't it? A rhino or a hippo charging to the street, knocking over stalls and... and um, you know, spices and herbs and ripping tents and stuff. But that's what the New Zealanders were like. They were larrikins in some ways. Mm. But the laughter soon ended. They went to Greece. And they then on to Crete, of course, in the yeah. retreat. But that, yeah. that was when the laughter really ended, yeah. wasn't it? It's, uh... it was, they were horribly unprepared. For, for, didn't have enough men or machines for Greece. Fray, New Zealand Prime Minister Fray, Fray, Peter Fraser wasn't happy with them going to, going to Greece, and, and uh, they, they were so terrified the Germans would come down to the Balkans that they tried to go and bulk up the, the Greece's defence, and Mussolini had invaded Albania to the, to the left, and they were sneaking along the Mediterranean towards Greece in that direction. But Greece was a shambles, and they were sent up north near the border, and Leggy de Grey was, they, they had to put the defensive lines through a cemetery, which meant some graves had to be shifted and Leggy was put in charge of that, which was a big mistake. He lost track of things. And when they finally reburied the, the remains, some bodies, some skeletons had no legs, another skeleton had two heads. So it was a bit of a shambles. But 
the, the Germans eventually broke through and Charlie and his men had to fight a valiant rearguard action. They, they were, things were so desperate, one day they were making their way south and a, a German dormier flew low overhead and the pilot waved and opened, slid back his window of his cockpit and, the, and threw out toilet paper to the New Zealanders on the ground to indicate, you're in the deep shit now. <laughs> and Charlie, I mean, remember, that they also, they were, as they were heading south, they passed and they came to a bank in an empty village and Charlie's men said, can we go in here, Charlie, and raid the bank? So they drove a heavy vehicle into the door and smashed the doors of the bank and came out with huge amounts of drachmas. And Leggy gave some to Charlie. And when Charlie got terrible dysentery on Crete and he, there was no toilet paper, so Charlie ended up using millions of... <coughs> millions of Greek banknotes to wipe his bum. But he didn't realise that the, the same currency was valid on Crete. <laughs> mm. They arrived in Crete, in dribs and drabs, yeah. after being evac evacuated. Crete, having read your account of it, which is very vivid, was absolute hell. I mean, when the Germans invaded Crete, it was truly hellish, the whole thing. It was hellish for the Germans and, as well. I couldn't believe how cold Crete was. As I said, when I arrived, there was snow on the hills, and I went to my, my hotel in Georgiopolis, and I was free. I, I was shivered the night was bloody freezing and I thought I'm in a warm bed with a duvet on top of me and I'm still cold these guys were out in, in olive groves trying to sleep in shallow little trenches they dug into the ground solid with olive tree roots so it must have been a lot tougher for them mm. and the uh, but the New Zealanders Australians and the British uh, had, had, were quite good at New Zealanders in particular were very good at camouflage so they were able to hide themselves in the olive groves and the Germans had spotter planes flying overhead all the time and they were crisscrossing the island weeks before the invasion, shooting up everything they could see. But the New Zealanders were very good at disguising their presence. And so the, the Germans, mis they misinterpreted, they didn't have the exact number of, of people there. Plus the British by then had broken the Enigma code, so Freiburg knew exactly what the German plans were for Operation Mercury. But Freiburg was so terrified, it was the, the new code-breaking thing was so secret, Freiburg didn't want to give the game away by reacting as if he knew everything the Germans were doing. He was terrified if they responded too quickly to what the German plans were and give the Germans clues to, to what was going on. So Freiburg was criticised quite a lot after the war for not taking full advantage mm. of the Enigma codes. I don't know where I was going here. And, um, and the, the, he got... Charlie received the BC, his first oh. BC, for, for, for Crete. Would that be correct? He did. He, he, it, the Crete was a debacle. The New Zealand High Command did not do a very good job, and Crete wasn't as defended as wisely as it could have been. Lots of soldiers. There was an airport called Malame. There were three airports on Crete. The most important one was Malame on the north coast facing Greece, so the closest to Greece. And the Germans were landing planes one every seven minutes, and they eventually got a foothold. They were landing junkers one every seven minutes. It was the busiest airport in the world. And the New Zealand privates and lower ranks were saying to their commanders, why don't we just put 44-gallon drums across the runway and the Germans won't be able to land here? Such a simple thing to do. They never did it. They never did it. So the Germans were able to, able to recapture Malame on the first day. They were losing everywhere else. The Germans lost... Over half the Germans who took off the first morning never got back to Greece because the New Zealanders were such good shots. The Germans were drop, drop, leaping out in parachutes and the, the command went around, aim for their boots. If you aim for the Germans' boots, you got them in the stomach. 
So an awful lot of the Germans were dead before they hit the ground, and, and they, they, were, they were complaining. They said, don't shoot, don't shoot, or they complained. You're not allowed to shoot till we hit the ground. Well, that, New Zealanders weren't going to do that. But one German officer crawling around the long grass on Crete looked at checking up on his men, found so many men with bullet holes right smack here in the middle of the forehead. He thought, oh, what a tragedy. We've landed, and, and we've, by, by mistake, we've landed in the middle of a sniper, sniper outfit. But they hadn't. They just landed amongst a bunch of good old Kiwi boys who were good shots, who'd grown up on farms and were good shots. So the Germans lost so many, so many uh, men that, in that first wave when the planes, the planes that did manage to get back to airfields just north of Athens, when they landed, they were full of holes and smoking, and the word had gone round that there was a hell hole they were landing in. Quite a few of the Germans in the second wave refused to get aboard. They didn't want to go to Crete, and they were shot on the spot. So if you've got 500 men and 50 are saying we're not going to go, and they're shot immediately, the other 450 don't complain. They got on the planes, but they were most reluctant. So there was a mutiny in, just in, in, in Crete. Some of the... the um, German soldiers didn't want to go. In fact, the, the general commandant, student, who was the architect of the plan, the news was so bad from Crete originally that he was in his hotel in Athens with the, holding on to his luger all night, wondering when he, he would have to blow his own head off because he would be, he'd be such a disgraced person. The news was so bad that Hitler told Goebbels not to tell the German people about it. There was actually a failure at first. The Germans were losing the battle for Crete until our poor command decisions meant that they they got a foothold, and Charlie was part of the team of pe people who were sent to try and recapture the airport. And it was in that first advance where Charlie was astonishingly bloody brave. He did phenomenal things, which are covered in detail in the book. You just can't, you just, yeah. you can't, can't believe it. He was phenomenally brave. He, he was sent out, he was asked to send some men out to the beach to warn a bunch of New Zealanders to retreat because of the airport was being taken, and there was no point getting slaughtered and they already lost that battle. Someone had to go and warn them to get back. And Charlie went himself. He took a, a guy from, called Dave Kirk with him, Sergeant Dave Kirk, who was another very brave man. And Dave Kirk and Charlie raced out to the, in the dark, and the rising sun was coming up, but it was still very grey. And the half-light of dawn, Charlie and Dave Kirk ran through this no-man's land to warn the other New Zealanders to pull back. And the Germans were firing at them, and bullets were whizzing around their head. Cactus was shattering over their head. Dirt was pinging up beneath their feet, and they finally got to a culvert, and Dave Kirk dived in it and below the bullets, and Charlie followed him behind him. Charlie said, the guy that taught them how to shoot ought to be fucking court-martialed and shot. <laughs> that was piss-poor shooting, and Charlie's biggest complaint was about the poor quality of German marksmanship, which meant he was still alive. But yeah. Dave Kirk said, you can remember that all his life, he never forgot that moment. Charlie moaning about the German training and how bad it was. <laughs> Charlie reckoned he was a good judge of German marksmanship, which kept them alive, and it must have. But when, when they got back to, to, when the New Zealanders and the Brits were finally evacuated from a port on the south coast called Svakia, and not all of them could be, lots of New Zealanders got sent off to prison of war camps after that debacle, but Charlie got off, and Kippenberger had to tell people, Don't, Charlie wanted to stay behind, Charlie was crying, I can't leave my men, because some of the men couldn't come, and Kippenberger said, we're not leaving Upham there, Upham has to come. Charlie shot away one stage and disappeared. And they said, where's he gone? Where's Charlie up and gone? Kippenberger would have a fit. Charlie had ducked into a village because he could hear animals in distress. And there were a bunch of donkeys in the yard that had been tied up. The village had been abandoned by the local Cretans when the fighting got too hot. So Charlie's last act on Crete was to duck into this village and set the animals free so they wouldn't starve to death. And then he got back onto the boat and went out and back to, back to Egypt. But he was crying in the boat because he'd left good men behind. And 
Kippenberger back in, in, in Egypt was asked, we must rescue something out of this debacle. So he was asked to draw up citations so they could at least hand out some medals from the battle and get some glory from it. And Kippenberger started interviewing soldiers about Charlie's actions because they all became quite legendary. And the more people he interviewed, he said, the more became he wrote an article for the Canadian RSA. He said, it became clear to me that Captain Charles Upham's actions on Crete rated 12 military crosses or three VCs. Three VCs on Crete alone, according to Kippenberger. And when you read what, what he did, you, you, you believe it. So I, I believe Kippenberger, I think Charlie did win three VCs on Crete alone, which was staggering. Mm -hmm. He got one. And then when he went to the Western Desert, a British general, Sir Peter de la Billiere, examined Charlie's records on Crete. And in, his, in the citation to King George, there were no, they, they, they list no fewer than five acts of conspicuous gallantry in the Western Desert. It's Alamein and Rue was at Ridge. So Charlie rated another five BCs on, in the Western Desert, which would have made him eight Vs in total. It would have been Charlie up in BC and Bar and Bar and Bar and Bar and Bar and Bar. Have a covered eight yet? Might be another couple. Bar and Bar. That would have made him the bravest man in the history of the world. And there's no way the Poms are going to do that. Even King George even balked at giving him two and said, Does this man up, in your opinion, Kippenberger, does this man up and really rate two VCs? And Kippenberger said, In my opinion, you're. Your, your Highness, Charlie Upham, won the VC many times over, and he certainly did. It was extraordinary. He was. Mm. I wonder how much, though, well, not but, but how much of that sort of his actions in battle were, do you think, self, a sense of self-preservation, if you like? You were, he was fighting for his own survival and... Uh, he was fighting for the survival of grace and humanity and decency in the world too. That's what he, he had a uh, at Waihi school. They played war games every weekend. Every weekend, the school would divide up on the Sunday afternoon and, into teams, and they would go off in bunches and hide in the landscape. They had the free range of the countryside, and one bunch would set off, and then at a specified time, they would be chased by another bunch. So, at the age of eight and nine, Charlie was playing war games at school. So he was certainly well-versed in, in warfare, even as a kid. Right. And right. he was a crack shot, and he learned to be tough and wiry on North Canterbury farms and stuff as a shepherd. He could sleep all night, if he'd be saturated and sleep all night on the ground, thoroughly wet. So he was tough physically and a crack shot. And he had this great moral code as well that his uncle had engendered into him. Mm -hmm. All those things combined to make him the perfect soldier, really. On the 15th of July, 1942, he was captured. Yes, yeah. After being severely wounded mm. in the Western Desert. I thought it was very illuminative. The first thing he did when he realised he was going to be captured was rip the VC ribbon from his yes, back. I couldn't believe that when I read that the first time round. Because the VC ribbon on it, the Germans love that stuff. They love... They're, they're infused with... They all knew, every German soldier knew that the best medal for courage in the world was the VC. It, it ranks higher than every other medal. Military historians don't seem to disagree on that. The VC is the hardest medal for courage to win. So Charlie, having won one, made him an extraordinary soldier. And this ribbon on, on, ribbon on, his, on his jacket here was his, his Koru Cloud membership card. That, you know, and um, Charlie, did, when he won it, he, did, he didn't wear it on his uniform for ages, and Freiburg used to walk down to the ocean naked, stark naked with a pith helmet, would stop up 
you, you come to Charlie, Charlie, where's your VC ribbon? Oh, I haven't, haven't, haven't sewn it on yet, sir. You must sew that ribbon onto your tunic, not to do so as an insult to the king. So Charlie very reluctantly sewed, when he was in the Western Desert, when he got it, they didn't give him the, the official metal, metal medal then, they just gave him the ribbon. So Charlie Leggy sewed the ribbon onto Charlie's tunic, probably poorly. And then when Charlie was about to be captured, he was able to rip it off and he threw it away into the sand and it flitted away across. And Peter Bush, the sports photographer, told me a story about his uncle Ron, who was an all-black. He was in the same Vinesburg camp as Charlie. And he, Peter said to me one day, oh, yeah, yeah, my uncle knew, my uncle uh, Ron knew, knew Charlie. They were in the boob together. Boob being Pete's word for a prisoner of war camp. He said he couldn't stand him and he hated and loathed Charlie Upham. And I said, why? And he said, he always putting everyone else's lives in danger. He was just a, he was a provocateur and he made, everyone was terrified that Charlie was going to get himself killed and them as well. And he told the story about the day there was a special assembly called one morning. All, this, all the camp had to line up for a special assembly. And I said, what's going on? And the word went around, Hauptmann Knapp is going to give Upham a replacement VC ribbon. They all went, oh, fuck, Jesus. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want it from, the, from his own side in the first place. Now the fact he was going to get another one from the Germans was just more than he could be. And they said, Charlie's not going to wind up well, not going to end well. And according to Ron, Charlie was out in front and the Germans came through the gate, spick and span, all in their number ones, crisply marching across to Charlie, stopped and saluted. Charlie stood there by himself. They were all behind Charlie. And they all worked out very quickly. If they, the people started shooting at Charlie, they were... They were collateral damage in a big way. And the guy, Houtman, stepped up to Charlie, two crisp steps, nasty salute, pulled out the replacement ribbon about to put on Charlie's tunic, and Charlie had been working his tongue in his mouth for a while and was able to produce a golf ball size of glob of mucus, which he spat in the German's face. <laughs> Boom. This mucus in Houtman's face, and Houtman's hand went down to his coat, not reaching for his luger, but for a handkerchief, wiped the mucus off his face, snacked, clipped his heels together, turned and walked out of the camp, and Charlie was dragged off to solitary confinement for another 29 days. So Charlie turned down the ribbon from the Germans. But he did, when he got the, when he got the VC in the desert, he, people said he looked like he just heard bad news. He wouldn't go to the, the mess tent for drinks with everyone else. He, was, he looked like a man who'd been utterly crushed. He was very angry. He said, I didn't win it, my men won it, my men won it. He genuinely, was genuinely unhappy about winning the VC. And there were teams of reporters coming out to see Charlie all the time. There was quite a big story in the British press, Charlie's first VC, because of what the, citation, the full citation was printed in the British press, and it makes exciting reading, reading even in its own right, even in the dry deadpan way they describe it. It's utterly gripping. So Charlie was a hero in Britain and in New Zealand, and these journalists were constantly all wanted to see him. Visiting journalists wanted to see him. And Charlie started hiding from visitors. He would tell Leggy, don't tell them where I am, and he would disappear, and... Kippenberger said, if you don't come out and, and agree to be interviewed, I'll have you charged with cowardice. <laughs> VC hero charged with cowardice for refusal. Did he get one of yeah, the books? Yeah, he, didn't, he, he did not want that VC at all. There's a great story I found in one book called Freiburg Circus, where a guy was in the, in the Helwan camp south of Cairo. He was being treated for the sinus problems, as was Charlie. And Charlie was in the next bed, and he said he was a wonderful man. His little man next to him was an extraordinary storyteller, and he said all his mates, all his platoon came to see him and they were clearly loved him. It was a story I really liked hearing. Charlie's men adored him and he adored them. But he said he was a chatterbox and a great raconteur and it, until you mentioned the VC, then he shut up and you never got another word out of him. Mm -hmm. yeah. He just refused to talk about the VC. It was, it was off, off limits.
having read the account of his, his imprisonment, uh, both in Italy and Germany, in Colditz, mm. um, I felt a sneaking sympathy for the Germans and Italians, <laughs> because Charlie would have been a prisoner from hell. He really. was. Um, but eventually, of course, he liberation, uh, except he didn't liberate himself. He joined the Americans. He, he did from... something extraordinary. When the Colditz Castle was fighting, the American army arrived, 7th Army, I think, was shelling Colditz Castle, and the guys had already anticipated this, and they'd built a huge French flag and, and, and a Union Jack, and they rushed upstairs to the highest part of the castle and unfurled these flags out the window so the Americans could see that this castle actually was you know, British and French, so they, they, Americans stopped shilling the castle, but they eventually broke in. They had to fight their way into cold. It's, I found some fascinating stuff about the, the young little wee boy. Yes. The, as the um, Americans were advancing in, into the town, schoolboys, eight-year-old boys, 10-year-old, 12-year-old boys would come rushing out to shoot at them, and one very popular American sergeant was shot in the head by a 12-year-old Hitler youth who could, again got mowed down immediately but to be killed by, by, by you know, a sub-teenager, pre-teen, they were such, such fanatics. And his body lay on the ground for three or four days until his mother plagued big with the Americans, can we please retrieve his body? And, and they said yes, in an old-fashioned Victorian horse-drawn hearse, a modern war, the mechanised warfare, mechanised mass destruction, an old horse-drawn hearse came out and they picked up his body and, and took it away to the local undertaker. But the Americans broke into the castle, and the first thing they did when they got there was they said, who do you want us to shoot? You know, which, which guards pissed you off? Who, who, who deserves to die? And the British said, no, 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 don't. We've been treated quite well. Don't shoot anyone. They were bloody lucky they didn't talk to Charlie because Charlie had a few Germans on his list. <laughs> but Charlie was also on the German list. He went into the commandant's office after the castle was liberated and found his file, and, um, and he was described as a, an enemy of the German people and a troublemaker. But when, and then the, German, the Americans sent trucks to pick up all the prisoners of war to drive them back across Germany to an airfield, an ex-Luftwaffe airfield to be flown into Cotis back to London. They loaded up all the trucks and they shot off. They had to drive quickly through the German landscape because there was mad... Still, although the, the war was over for that particular part of Germany, there were still bands of mad Hitler youth, crazed Hitler youth, roaming around shooting blindly and, you know, dying... Being shot like bloody, they were crazy, and they were they, they couldn't risk slowing down and being killed by these Hitler Youth people. And but Charlie didn't get on board, didn't get on board the truck. He was, as far as we know, he was the only prisoner in Colditz who didn't hop on board a truck. He went down a side alleyway into the Colditz village, the same flight of steps that I came up on a Sunday morning. Charlie went down the flight of steps, found the American headquarters, and said, "Can I have a helmet and a battle jacket, and can I join you in the in the fight?" So Charlie wanted. Charlie enrolled in the American Marines, the American Army, to fight the war. And for four days, Charlie, while they all landed, when the planes landed in, in England, of course, Charlie was noted as missing. And I said, what, what happened to him? And they said, well, I think he's still back in, in Germany. And somehow or other, they, they checked with the Americans. Oh, yes, we do have a, an, an extra guy, a New Zealander, who's joined us. And Charlie was in a jeep heading towards Berlin, preparing to take on the, the remnants of the rump of Germany and when he was ordered by the British high authorities, they had to give up. He still wanted to go back to war. Most prisoners of war at that stage would have said, I can't wait to get home to mum and the wife and the kids, and I'm going to you know, stay alive because I've survived this far. I'm not going to die now. Charlie put all that aside, and, 
and he wanted to go back to Nazi Germany. When he, so when he was ordered back, he, he made his own way back across Germany and France and visited Buchenwald and a few of the camps and saw at first hand how ghastly he thought Nazi Germany could have been from his own reading before the war. And even that just further reinforced his belief that fascism was a great evil and had to be eliminated. He got back to Britain and he wanted, when they, they wanted volunteers to go back into occupied Germany to be policemen, Charlie volunteered to go back into Germany as a policeman because he had a few scores to settle. <laughs> but quite rightly, they ruled out former prisoners of war to be part of the army of occupation because they thought they would have vengeance on their heart and it wouldn't be a good idea. But, so Charlie kept fighting even after the war. Eventually, though, he got back to Britain where he married Molly, who was working yep, with married the Red Molly, Cross. Yep. Um, Tom, I was going to ask you, I know we're crossing a lot of time here in history, but he came back to New Zealand. He went, got his farm up at Conway yeah. River. His behaviour when he got back, he couldn't stand being enclosed in spaces. He couldn't stand doors slamming. No, Do you yeah. think he was suffering from what we today call post-traumatic Syndrome yeah, disorder. I stayed with his daughter Caroline in Gisborne for a few days and she was a lovely, beautiful woman and her husband Marty's a lovely guy and we lots and lots of stories, lots of whiskey was drunk and lots of stories and lots of lies swapped. And I'd, I was in the guest bedroom and I noticed that there was no lock on the bathroom door or the toilet doors. All there was was a, a stuffed animal filled with buckshot, like a heavy rabbit or something. And you couldn't lock the toilet door, which is a bit disconcerting. And you couldn't lock the shower. And, you know, you know I thought, what's going on? I said to Caroline... Why, what are all the rubber stoppers on every door and why is the buckshot animals filled with buckshot in the toilets in the bathroom? She said, oh, well, his dad couldn't stand being locked in anywhere. He hated being locked in mm. and he couldn't stand slamming doors. A slamming door would set him off. And Charlie said to Ken Sanford that a slamming door could send him off. You know, yeah. you hear a slamming door, he'd go back, he'd panic. And Charlie went to a, a hungi in Kaikoura after the war and they put, I don't know anything about a hungi, but apparently you use the wrong boulders when they get too hot, they, they will spit like, like artillery shells to make a loud explosive crack. And these boulders all started exploding under the hangi and all the other cockies hanging, standing around, all the other husbands sort of stepped back a bit. Fucking hell, Jesus, they were stepped back a bit nervous. When looked around, Charlie had hit the dirt and rolled into a ditch. His, his mm. response was that of a soldier under, under enemy fire. Mm. There's, there's no question, and Charlie himself told Ken Sanford that, that he was still affected by the war. And, and who can blame him, really? This is absolutely fascinating. A, a final question before we invite questions from the audience. Did you find Charlie, do you think, in this book? Um, I, I, I don't know if you've got the, got the book. I wrote a sentence describing Charlie for his best friend, Frank Wilding. I don't know if it's in the book, if I can remember it correctly. Frank was his next-door neighbour, Frank was the guy that Charlie came in one day and Frank was having afternoon tea and Charlie arrived and said, oh, I think I've overstepped the mark today, Frank. He said, what happens? Oh, geez, I, I was driving down, down the road and through the gap in the, in the, the gorge, one of the creeks run into the sea, they cut a hole in the cliff and you can see down onto the, onto the beach. He said, there was a fucking Japanese squid boat and they were having a barbecue above the high tide mark on my land, the bastards, they were trespassing. So I went home and got my Winchester and he came back and he said he fired bullets through the wheelhouse of the Japanese squid boat. He said, you've never seen Japs throw so fast in your life. He said, but I'm, I think I might have overstepped the mark. And he certainly had. The, the captain of the boat radioed the Japanese embassy who radioed Christchurch 
police who radioed Amberley Police who said, oh, I think we might know who it is. <laughs> <laughs> and they drove up, up to Conway Flats and confiscated Charlie's Winchester for a, for a bit. So he did. But I heard this story from Jim Hopkins that the myth and I taking part in the debate in Christchurch with David McPhail and, and A.K. Grant and Jim Hopkins and other people years and years ago in, in the green room. We were talking about Charlie because I was fascinated by Charlie and I brought up Charlie and Jim Hopkins said, you know, he was mad, don't you? I said, what do you mean? Every night he walked along the cliffs at night like Heathcliff with a 303 shooting at squid boats on the horizon. And, but that's the myth. Charlie didn't do that, but he did shoot at the, at the Japanese people who he thought were barbecuing illegally on his property. But I might be able to find the line. Yeah. I made two trips to see Frank and Joe Wilding as well, staying two nights on my second visit. So I had with Caroline and Marty. We drank lots of Jamison's whiskey around a roaring, roaring fire, talking late into the night about Charlie. It gave me confidence to pass Frank a slip of paper with a single sentence on it I'd written trying to sum up Charlie. It read, Charlie up and believed that all human beings were equal and defended this principle with an all-consuming passion, fury and courage on a scale that did the very thing he hated most. It set him apart. And, and, and Frank said, that's him, that's Charlie, that's Charlie. And at that point, you knew you probably had found him. So when they told me that, and when Caroline said, oh, it's a pity you didn't meet Dad, you would have, he would have really liked you, you would have got on like a house on fire. He said, yeah, and you, and, you and Dad would have drunk a lot of Jamisons. And... Once you'd got over the stair. Yeah, once, yeah. I'd, once I'd managed to handle his stair. <laughs> yeah. Tom, this has been fascinating, and thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Yeah. I'm now going to turn it over to you, good people. Uh, there are, I am reliably informed, roving mics. That always strikes fear into my heart. But here they are. So, brief questions. Fascinating to hear your stories, but brief questions at this juncture for Tom. So, if you could raise your hand. What, um, just wondered what happened to Legally Le Gros. What happened to... Baldrick, Leggy. Leggy, um, he, he went back to the West Coast, I think, and he, he was besieged by so many people asking him about Charlie, he became a bit of a recluse and didn't want to talk about Charlie after a while. He'd had enough, and so did Bob May, his former um, company sergeant major. Mm. Some people get sick and tired of being asked about famous people. I found that when I was doing, writing my documentary on Ed Hillary, after a while, all the climbers who went to Everest with them who didn't get to the top were sick and tired of talking about Ed, you know, because they didn't get to the top and they, were, they resented the amount of attention that Ed received and they felt left out. And I think some of Charlie's friends made it. It's just a human nature thing. It's, uh, so they, they all retreated into anonymity. But... Tom, you, you told a few stories this afternoon that didn't end up in the book. Did you have to cut a lot out? I'm sure people in this room could add a few extra Charlie stories. What was the question? Did, did you... Um, did, did you have to cut much out of your book? Did you leave, have to leave stories out of it? Did you have to... Cut much out? Did you have to edit? Or... Uh, 
and the lack of water. So, uh, and Jim Henderson and Gunner and Glorious, he writes about quite movingly about when he was badly injured. He was driven across the desert. And he was badly, hell of a badly wounded. And this ambulance driver stopped every half hour to hop out and come around to the back of the desert and shine his torch on him and offer him a thermos, his own thermos flask of coffee and say, you must have some coffee. And Jim Henson said this German was so kind to him and drove so carefully and so solicitous when he finally got him to a, 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 a camp, a hospital. Um, Jim Henderson said, you're here, take my watch as a thank you. And the German said, no, he refused to take Jim Henderson's watch. But there were examples of that. Charlie himself at Rubosit Ridge saw a lot of bunch of captured Germans lying on the ground looking rather dismal. And Charlie had just seen men all around him, his own men blown apart by German gunfire. And Charlie himself had been shot in the, in the arm. But they, one of Charlie's men saw Charlie rush up to the Germans. He was terrified that Charlie was going to do something brutal to these tied-up captured Germans. But he didn't. He pulled out his water flask and went down the line offering all these Germans water from his own water flask. So even in the height of a battle, Charlie was, was able to show compassion. And I think both sides were able to do that in the war. They also shot each other's prisoners without compunction, rather if they meant too mm. much. Feeding him, looking after him was going to be too much trouble. There was a, a few war crimes in the Western Desert as well, but there's also some, some chivalry. I think the New Zealanders were, were just as chivalrous. One of the guys I spoke to was Major Bob Wood. He got a glass of, when he was captured, he met Rommel. Rommel came along in the forward after we was at Ridge and saw some captured New Zealanders and said, are they New Zealanders? His men said, yes, they are. Bring, them, bring three of them over. And Bob was one of the three who came over to meet Rommel. Rommel said, the sun was going down, and Rommel said, here, have some cold Chablis. And he poured them each a glass of cold Chablis and said, and they had a sipping cold wine, German wine, in the desert, and he said, you guys are a long way from New Zealand, and Bob said, you're a long way from Saxony, or wherever you came from, and Rommel laughed when he was, this will be the last wine you had for some time, and he was, he was quite, and he wrote brilliantly about, about the New Zealanders, he was, once wrote a list for his own men of the, the, the prowess of the excellence, which were the best military men in the, in, in the Western War, the Western Desert War, in order of, of merit, and he put New Zealanders at number one, and he wished he could have a whole the battalion of New Zealanders that they'd make, they'd make great soldiers. He said, when their story, when their history is eventually written, it should make the best fighting of the war. So Rommel had a huge admiration for the New Zealanders. Bob Wood also told me the story that that he was with he was when he was captured, the Italians looked after him and took him. They drove them back to back to Libya, and as they were driving across the desert, they came across a convoy of Italian cars coming the other way, a whole bunch of Lanciers parked on the side of the road near an oasis and. Their truck stopped, and Bob. Someone said, "That's Mussolini, that's Mussolini," and Bob's and all the, the Italian drivers hadn't stopped to let them have a have a whittle break. So Bob said, "Let's do a mass crap for Mussolini." <laughs> so all the New Zealanders got out of the trucks and they lined up. I'm going to demonstrate this. You may want to move front row. <laughs> they lined up, and Bob said, and "They all did the old," and Bob said, "Down trow." And they all dropped their trousers and the shorts rather, and they said, "Right." Mass crap now, and New Zealanders. <laughs> I think on that yeah. note, <laughs> yeah. Tom, it's yeah. been an enriching hour with you and the book too, and thank you very, very much. Thank indeed. you, thank you. Thank you. Um, this man once compared a book to a dinner party.
where good stories follow good stories follow good stories. Well, sadly, we have to leave the table now. The coffee will be served outside, and Tom will be signing his book. So those of you who want to share something more will have an opportunity there. Thank you for all coming. Without you, the Word Festival would be half complete. But it's great to see you here. It's great to have people like Tom. Thank you again. Godspeed. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you.